Kia ora, and welcome to the Super Tilt Podcast. If you're new here, super stoked to have you. If you're an old friend, welcome back. We're your hosts, Marnie, Blaze, and Aiden, and if you're tuning in for the first time, Super Tilt Podcast is born out of the burning desire to build a bridge between New Zealand tech and the rest of the world. It's a truth box, raw, uncensored chat designed to tilt your perspective on the state of New Zealand and the rest of the world. Let's get into it. Kia ora and welcome back to Super Tilt, the podcast. Today we are going to be discussing a really fucking juicy topic and that is cannabis. We are diving into the question, did New Zealand fuck up a major opportunity in not legalizing recreational cannabis? Hmm. And discussing how legalization has freed up a lot of innovation around cannabis products, particularly in California. So let's get into it. Welcome, Aiden and Marnie. How you doing? Morena. Kia ora. Kia ora. Yeah, how are you? dosed up. Not on cannabis, but on caffeine, I guess. Good vibes. <laughs> we don't have the cannabis. Something that really blew my mind was 74 metric tons of cannabis is consumed in New Zealand. 1.5 billion oh. New Zealand dollars worth of cannabis. Mm. 1.5 bill. Wow. That's huge. All the leaves. And a lot of leaves. Putting a that, lot of leaf. Putting that into a statistic that's potentially more relatable is that 80% of all New Zealand adults have consumed cannabis in some way or another. And it's not legal. So I see you. <laughs> we're all doing it. <laughs> yeah. And it strikes me that we're just not very good at referendum, are we? So we had 15.7 mm. vote against the bill. We have 48.4 vote in support of it. Just for context, for all of the international listeners, New Zealand voted for this in our last election. And the other referendum that was on there was euthanasia. And we decided that euthanasia was fine, but cannabis wasn't. It's a bit of an interesting line for New Zealand to draw, really, isn't it? We're okay with with euthanasia, which I support. And Mm -hmm. we're not okay with recreational cannabis. Interesting. It's straight up weird, to be honest. We're being highly liberal on one really important issue. And then... When it comes to cannabis, we're just moping around in the dark. Mm. It would have been a massively super tilt move for the country to legalize, 100%. And that's really interesting because you look at the industry that has come out of legalization, particularly in the States, and it's incredible. Product innovation in cannabis is huge. There's a lot, Aiden. There's a lot you can do with cannabis when it's legal. It's honestly, it's so overwhelming, the plethora of product optionality. It's really opened up this landscape of brands and just consumer options that enable every type of consumption experience that you could basically ever need. Yeah, it's interesting because when something is legal, it's subject to competition and general capitalism and you have to create competitive advantage through branding or product or whatever, don't you? And you're seeing that with THC and CBD. There's all sorts of new delivery mechanisms, including drinks, edibles, um, vaping, all sorts of things that have come out of the legalization of cannabis and it's created good user experiences, hasn't it? Totally. And a, a great creativity around consumer products in the space and across the whole industry it's not just productization there's 
all sorts of different e-commerce and delivery options and then right even SaaS, even SaaS companies for cannabis services exactly like mm. how what are the back-end um, infrastructure things that are needed for this industry yeah, and I think that that's a good point, Marnie, because it brings us into the to the next sort of curly area of this whole this discussion, particularly in the states, is that recreational cannabis is legal in sixteen states, but it's not legal federally in the US, and that creates some really interesting dynamics for the market and the industry as a whole, doesn't it? Tricky tension for sure. It's super tricky. So by no means is the US like this you know, shining case study of excellence in the regulatory domain. Not at all. They're, they're still figuring their shit out. But at least you've got some best-in-class states that are shining the way and showing what's possible, and then they're kind of jumping on that bandwagon and the momentum is happening off the back of that. That's right, and I think Brett will probably give us a better insight into how that actually works. But from my understanding, because the federal government oversees the states, you can't have interstate trade of cannabis, and there's issues with banking. And both of those then have material impacts on how these ventures are funded and how they grow. For me, this wasn't something that I thought of automatically, but even if New Zealand did legalise cannabis in the referendum, there are like three UN drug treaties which don't allow global trade in recreational cannabis which makes sense when you think about it so who knows how long this time frame is going to be before the commonwealth countries could legally trade wow. cannabis yeah true for it's recreational point, purposes Blaise. there's still just so much um opacity yeah, I think legalization would have established a good domestic market, wouldn't it? And from that statistic of $1.5 billion of, of cannabis consumed in New Zealand, you know, that's not a small industry for New Zealand. But certainly you wouldn't have global exports or us exporting to the States, would you? No, not in the recreational realm. There, there would be with medicinal cannabis and there is still that opportunity, thankfully. But there's still other markets like Thailand, for instance, they are producing shitloads of medicinal cannabis at a really cost-efficient and re recreational way. cannabis. Yeah, um, well, just in the medicinal cannabis okay. realm, mm -hmm. yep. but they they could easily produce shitloads of medicinal cannabis at a really cost-effective way, and New Zealand might not do so in such an effective manner yeah i think i think you're right if cannabis was legal globally like alcohol or tobacco then you would quickly see the commoditization of cannabis wouldn't you you'd see those regions that have really big agricultural sectors like south america like southeast asia potentially all growing huge amounts of cannabis and then where new zealand would fit into this would probably be in the IP or the niche branded high value product, particularly like what we do with our current dairy. But it's a really good question. I don't think it's one that there are any certain answers around, are there? No, no. Another interesting one is thinking about the, the social dynamics around cannabis. And this is something I'm excited to dig into with Brett because he's got so much insight as a founder in this space. How how much equity is there in this ecosystem? If you are mm. you know, gung-ho about driving forward a company in this sector. Equity and justice, you mean? Exactly. Mm. 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 
sorry, not equity as in cap tables, but <laughs> that also that. I think it's a really good question, Blaze, because it is both, isn't it? I think it's pretty well documented that those that have innovated and seeded this industry, you don't see those sort of industry leaders, as, as, if you want to put it that way, getting the benefits of the legalisation. A, half of them are still in jail, which I think Brett will probably touch on. And a lot of the old white established money is pouring into the industry. So the industry in, in its own right looks like it's growing really, really well. But the equity in the market is not there. And I don't think that's right. No, totally. it's, it's frankly disgusting, um, especially given yeah. the fact that drug prohibition was created to break up communities and jail civil rights black activists and leaders in the US and yep. it's spun out into this disgusting situation where so many so many black folk are incarcerated in the US and it's the same in New Zealand with Maori um and so that's the sad state of this referendum not passing is that cannabis as a drug exists regardless of law and law can increase or decrease that harm and right now it's hurting far more than it's helping and so unfortunately the historical injustices haven't been alleviated and the criminal convictions that have spun out of this haven't been improved, enhanced. I, yeah. I agree. Because you, you can't really talk about the cannabis industry without talking about the history of racism that's been part of it. And if you look at the history and if you look at it objectively and you look at some of the stereotypes around cannabis use, you just look at this and go, this is nonsensical. And I believe probably in New Zealand, we still have some of that legacy issue or legacy propaganda in at least half our population. And you see it through the police as well. But you just look at their view on marijuana and it is all tinged with a racist bias and it's not a good one. And I think that's a big part of this discussion. And I think one that you really need to clear up. You just say, look, cannabis shouldn't be intrinsically linked with racism, but it is. And we need to acknowledge it. Mm. And there's there's so much misinformation. And I think that that really affected the results of this referendum in New Zealand. Right, and the paradigms being held by the old guard, as I, I want to dig into with Brett. Yeah, good point. Did, did you ever have discussions with your parents or your f- parents' friends or any of that kind of older generation about the legalisation question? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And it was and what were their eye-opening. It was so fundamental that we yeah. actually had that discussion. But to be honest... I don't know how many younger gen would have delved into it and shared their knowledge in the way that we did with our parents, for example, and what that opened up. It was fundamentally, they didn't understand what the referendum well, actually meant. Were they open meant. to it when you discussed it with them, though? Yeah. Oh, totally. A thousand percent. Sure. We, we were able to mm. flip their opinion and oh, voting decision mm. in a matter of five minutes just by purely explaining like what the legal outcomes would have been. That was the same experience with me. I mean, my parents, I'm, I'm very fortunate that they're not going the way of most of my friends' parents. These people tend to get a bit more boomer as they get older, whereas my parents are keeping up with the times, as it were. And we, we had very good open discussions. My sister was also very good at, at leading that discussion with them, and we talked about euthanasia and cannabis at, at the dinner table. And they, again, had their opinions changed. And they've, I think they voted in favour of it. But the way that they had seen it, the way that they had thought about it for years was really was really negative. Yeah. Um, wow. That's powerful, eh? It's, 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 it's interesting that it yeah. re- does. It's an issue that requires that much hand-holding, that personal touch hand-holding. The discussions I had with, with the older generation that weren't my parent were very enlightening and they were very steadfast. 
because I think they've just had years of going, marijuana is a gateway drug. And if you smoke it, you turn into a pothead and you just become useless and you'll become a heroin addict and you'll be on the street. And you just look at it and go, cool, like that wasn't true in the 80s. It's not true now. <laughs> what have you been smoking and be thinking that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Their point of view was not open to change. You just literally had a battle line drawn. I think wait for the population demographic to change slightly, maybe give it 10 years if you read between the lines of that one. And we have the vote again. And I think you'll find that the vote changes quite significantly. Yeah, we literally mm. just have to let the old guard die off. And, and um, Yeah, read between the lines, yeah, eh? That's it. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> also, it I just want to double back. A key thing that helped our parents understand this referendum and what legalizing cannabis would mean was when we likened it to um, the prohibition of alcohol. And the penny really dropped when I grilled them on desirability of buying wine in like random black container flasks with no labels, nothing like, and that was when they were like, oh, oh yeah, no, we wouldn't want to buy wine at all. Oh no, no, that would be really like, yeah, It wouldn't weird. even be wine as well. It'd be 80, 80% proof <laughs> vodka or yes. whiskey. Exactly. And exactly. half of it exactly. might be methanol. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a really good point because that's product innovation to compete in a free competitive legal market. You've got something like caffeine where it's not illegal, but you can technically consume caffeine in a pill form. You can crush it up and snort it, but people don't do that because you have caffeine available in coffee. You have caffeine available in Coca-Cola. There's all these other desirable ways of getting the same caffeine hit. But if you were to make caffeine illegal, you would see it smoked and probably crack for you would have it in powder form because that'd be the easiest Mm -hmm. way to Mm -hmm. to deliver it illegally to a market who just wants a caffeine caffeine up your ass literally like you literally would you know my background is in genetics and science biological sciences is what i studied at university and part of that is organic chemistry and slight tangent here but all of these drugs alcohol thc cbd caffeine if you just did the thought study that said if these things were legal, what would happen? And you would find that methamphetamine in particular, amphetamines would probably go the same way as, as coffee. People wouldn't choose to smoke it out of a crystal pipe in a fucking drug den. There would be a whole industry around quality control and product delivery. And people would say, cool, I'm happy to have an amphetamine drink. I think that would be outside of mm-hmm. the realm of what people would expect. And probably people aren't prepared to hear that, but that's what would happen. And it's the same thing with legalization of all of these substances. And alcohol is a really good one that you pointed out. As soon as it's illegal, consumption doesn't change, but you don't get the quality control. You don't get dosage. Mm -hmm. You don't get control of who buys it. You can't restrict it to ages or anything like that. And it doesn't work. And I think that's true for cannabis. Mm -hmm. Mm. Totally. And I also want to recognize that it's not just like rando, scary people smoking. Fuck no. And, and a lot of the harm is born out of like someone's weed dealer might not have any that week. And then that takes them down into to trying synthetic cannabis. And then that's, that's the scary path. And normal good people can go down that road. And I think it's just if, if it's illegal, you don't have recourse. Yeah, true. You can't go to the police and say this person sold me something bad. You, you just don't have the framework mm. to deal with all of the commercial realities of an industry like this if it's legal. And if you're going to set up an industry, you have to work out how to make it sustainable, how to make it eco-friendly and how to make a good product 
all of these things come into production at scale that we have to think about. There's so much to think about in this domain, right? How do we structure it so that we're actually setting up the framework, the right building blocks for a sustainable industry to prosper without going down this awful big egg road that could well transpire if we're not careful. Yeah, you make a really good point there, Marnie. And I think, yes, we're touching on this ecology piece last, but really it should be the the first thing that is considered because ultimately this industry is agricultural and the really important trends that we're seeing play out across the world right now is going beyond sustainability to regenerative. And it's actually really crucial that we are considering the inputs and outputs of this industry and how it's affecting the soil and how it's benefiting our climate. Whilst also being very savvy to the fact that this is a commercial enterprise. And so like at the end of the day, how is that squaring with the commercial demands and and production demands Mm -hmm. for for a booming, booming uh, product slash commodity? I think that's a really important point. And then I I guess the last Mm -hmm. thing is New Zealand's also arguably in a really interesting position because indoor growing is very energy intensive. But if New Zealand has a really good renewable energy mix, then there may not be such an issue from a climate point of view, whereas it might be in somewhere like New York. We could have a green cannabis industry pretty quickly here. I think it'd be a really cool thing to see. Absolutely. And on the research side as well, like use all of our agri-tech inputs and and funnel some of that IP towards cannabis tech from a clean green New Zealand uh, angle. Mm. You know what? I think this is a good time to segue into chatting with Brett. So uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be back talking with Brett, one of my homies. We actually were in the 500 Startup Accelerator together in San Francisco. Brett was in the 500 team on the investment side um, and he's since been doing some dope stuff in the cannabis space. So... Let's dive in with him. This is coming up after the break. Okay, so welcome back from the break. On the phone, we have Brett Fink, partner at Greater Holdings. Now, Brett has worked with hundreds of businesses as a venture investor and has helped build Old Pal, one of the largest multi-state cannabis brands, and he was the first employee and a senior vice president. Now, prior to Greater, Brett's also worked at 500 Startups, running the accelerator that invested in businesses like Ease, Baker, and was part of the growth story of Snapchat and Casper, all pre-IPO. So it's a bit of a guru in the cannabis space. Brett, welcome. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a late night here in Los Angeles. And uh, honestly, it's been one of the craziest starts of a year in the cannabis space. I've been in the space since 2017, and uh, it keeps getting more interesting in America. Yeah, so give us a bit of a rundown as to how it all works in the States. Now, we've obviously been talking about New Zealand's referendum and how we decided that we didn't want to make it legal here. And we're kind of keen just to get an insight as to how the industry works, what the advantages and challenges are, and maybe some just discussion about how product innovation can happen when something like marijuana becomes legal. No, it's so funny because I definitely like... People in New York, you know, so I'm from New York. I grew up, born and raised outside of New York City. And uh, in in New York City right now, 
cannabis is still illegal and people still call it marijuana. It's like a kind of old school term for it, but cannabis is still illegal in New York. And I fly from California to New York and it is a totally different world. All of my friends buy their weed from dealers who they have no idea what they're getting. They're getting honestly not that great of stuff and maybe stuff that's not good for you. There's no regulation, right? So they're getting vape carts and like, who knows what people are putting in these vapes. These are vapes. Most of the product that is in New York and people are buying on the illegal market are, are failed products from California that somebody in California sold illegally in the illegal market in New York. So it's, it's such a unique place in America still where I live in Los Angeles. It has been recreationally legal here since 2018. I've been living here since 2015. And all along the way, I've been able to buy or acquire some sort of cannabis from a legal source. I can go to a medical dispensary. I can go to a recreational dispensary. We have come so far in the product innovation in cannabis in California that people in New York are still wrapping their heads around just like being able to purchase marijuana, where in California you have probably about a hundred different form factors of ways that you can consume cannabis and more are coming out every week. So if you're in the product space of cannabis, how does that work? You've got some regulation that give you the constraints that you have to stick within, but you can compete on all sorts of things. Is that how it works? I'll, I'll give you you know an example of my business old pal that we started out with was actually just a flower brand. So we had a big dispensary that wanted to make a value product. They wanted to make a $15 eighth. So um, they came to somebody on my team at old pal and said, Hey, you know, could you make this product? And we knew a manufacturer at the time who can actually be price competitive by sm- selling smaller nugs of flour. So, if you're familiar with the cannabis plant, a lot of people like smoking the really big buds, but in California, nobody sold the small buds. All the small buds just went to go get extracted. We mm-hmm. took those small buds instead of extracting them, we put them in a bag and we started selling them to people for cheaper. This was a huge hit. This was 2018. This is still to this day, it was very new. And now a lot of people are doing it in California, but if you go to Cal- you go to New York to an illegal market, people are still getting super high prices for that exact same raw material because that's all they really have there. So it's interesting to draw some parallels here where in 2018, that was really cutting edge. In New York, there was nothing different. There was no, There is no product innovation. That's just being sold as the premium high end, that and vape carts, of course. Flash forward from 2018 to now, there's all different types of products. You could have You can have capsules and intake capsules in your mouth. You could smoke. You can vaporize. There's a nebulizer that has no vapor smoke that you could smoke and get high. There's sublingual tabs. There's powders that you can drink in your water. There's drinks, beverages. There's uh, suppositories. You could stick THC up your ass if you wanted to. And and people like it and buy it. And it's a total thing. You know, uh, lubricants, Mm -hmm. uh, you name it somebody's thought of it and is creating some sort of brand behind it. And California is so far ahead of everywhere else. And, you know, some other recreational markets in the U S that when it comes to recreational and other places, people are going to be blown away with the amount of innovation that there has been. Yeah, actually on that note, because Kelly has typically been so ahead of the curve, was it really hard for Opel to differentiate itself aside from the, the small bud factor because of all the noise. We got lucky 
And when we started, it was at a time that was very, there was a lot of regulatory change. So there weren't a lot of people with products ready to go when we started. And because we were focusing on the value business first, a lot of people didn't compete in that space specifically. It's like, why would I go sell a Budweiser when I can go and sell the Dom Perignon or Vouv or whatever the high-end alcohol you could think of the alternative being, right? It's, it's people and businesses don't think of let's sell a value product at scale. They say, let's sell the best product you could possibly make which is where most of the competition has been. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so now that this is sort of an established market in California and it's starting to become legal across the states, yet it's not legal at a federal level, what are the challenges that you currently face in this industry to try and make it mainstream and to make these businesses robust in a completely, it's not backwards the way that it works, but it's just an added level of complexity, isn't it? So how do you, how do you yeah. make that work? Yeah, it's one of those things that the industry is still hampered by the lack of federal infrastructure. Example, people who have cannabis businesses can't bank. But mm. This is a big issue, right? Most of the businesses that exist either find some bank that is a smaller bank that will bank them or maybe have a debit card system or just carrying cash around. Like that's an issue. The other thing here is most of these businesses are going out and they're setting up shop in California and they want to go to other recreational markets. The problem is you can't bring product from California to other markets. And this becomes really logistically interesting for these brands that are are in California and they're like, oh, we want to grow. Okay, well, we have to go find manufacturers in every single state and manufacture a product in every single state, including states that don't really have the infrastructure for growing cannabis looking at New York or Massachusetts or companies that are, or areas that are in like the Northeast or the North of, of the U S where it snows half the year, right? You can't grow outdoor cannabis if it snows. So you have to grow indoor and indoor is a massive energy suck. Um, it's really unsustainable. It's not good for the environment. Uh, and it's just one of those things like that is a pretty big issue that we're looking at down the line is, you know, New York is not going to be able to produce the amount of flour that they need to be sustainable for the actual population that lives in New York. Does New York have a big smoking population? Huge. I, mm. we, most people who are in cannabis now look at New York as something that is matching California in terms of size, if not exceeding California in terms of size. And it couldn't have an industry there without a federal, uh, without it being legal federally, because they wouldn't well, produce for themselves. I think this year or next year they'll probably go recreational, but they'll just be a bunch of indoor growers. So what you're going to have sure. is a massive price. You're going to have a huge price uh, issue because it's going to be very expensive to grow. So people are going to sell at high prices. And some folks will buy that, but the black market is still going to exist. People will still go from California, buy a bunch of pounds, ship them across the country and sell them to people because it's going to be that much cheaper. So there'll still be a, a, a sort of a, an illegal arbitrage that can can happen. Massive, massive arbitrage. If, if it was recreationally legalized in New York, does that mean they won't have access to the more nuanced varieties of products like regeneratively sun-grown flower? Exactly. Yeah, there's no such there will be no such thing as Flocana in New York because everything will be grown indoors. So 
Um, you'll, you will definitely have different form factors and categories like edibles and sublinguals and whatever. You'll have manufactured goods. But for flour, there's definitely not going to be the diversity of flour there is in California. And my thought would be most of the groups who will have manufacturing output in New York would probably try to, instead of selling high-end flour, would try to sell some of the manufactured goods because the raw material requirements for those goods is so much lower as compared to flour. With an eighth of flour, I can make multiple packs of edibles that is probably just going to be a more sustainable product in the market than just selling all of this flour, which will make, you know, one product of one unit of flour could be 10 units of edibles, depending on the size. Right. Mm. Or would something products like the dosis pen just like boom in New York on that, on on that front? Absolutely. It would. Um, Mm -hmm. It is something that realistically, Anything that requires a low amount of raw materials would survive in New York and and probably do well. But again, people love flour. Every state across the U.S., you have the consumers that are the heavy consumers love flour and will continue to buy flour. So I've I've got a question about production, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Now, one of the other things that we've talked about a lot on our podcast is about how we can get away from agriculture as a like an economic fundamental for our local economy. Can you explain how positive growing the plant on the land can be, considering that agriculture is horrific for carbon emission and it's horrific for the environment and it's a pretty shitty business? I mean, I'm not a uh, regenerative agriculture specialist, and I certainly know some folks who are uh, up in, in Humboldt, which is where... We source a lot of materials for for uh, Old Pal is where most of the cannabis is grown in California. At least a large chunk of it is grown in Mendocino and Humboldt, um, where there are people who are doing some real amazing things for regenerative agriculture in that movement. At the end of the day, these are all businesses that without the right regulations will do whatever is best for the business, which is not always best for the land, which is not always best for natural resources. So outdoor versus indoor, it's like indoor, you have all of those issues with energy uh, and how much energy you're using and the lack of efficiency with outdoor requires much less energy, but obviously people can take advantage of, uh, you know, planting in natural soil. There can be issues with that in terms of heavy metals and what waters you're using, what chemicals you're using. Like there are some, uh, there are some negatives to both. I would say Uh, I'm not a cultivation specialist but at some point flour has to get grown right yeah so what what do we optimize for as we are growing this plant are we optimizing for the amount that we can grow or are we optimizing for thc production because in america a lot of growers especially growers who are growing indoor are optimizing for thc production which requires a ton of energy and requires full control of the plant, which is why people grow indoor. Outdoor folks, people do want more THC production, but they're going out and they're buying acres and acres and acres and acres and acres and acres and acres acres of land, very specifically grow cannabis, uh, when they, I guess, could be growing food. There there is a trade-off there, right? So it's not a very easy and clear-cut issue, just the same way that you know, eating meat or not eating meat is a clear cut issue, right? It's not, it's, you know, there's carbon emissions and there's killing of animals on both sides of the coins, right? Like there's still 
these fundamental ethical issues that are not unique to cannabis, but are more environmental choices that we have to make as a society to say, what will we allow businesses to do in order to have a sustainable business and in order to have sustainable land for us to continue to survive on? That is such a fundamental yeah, pillar of the It's a very good answer. It's, it's, mm. Yeah, it's a very enlightening answer. Mm. And actually, speaking of the ethical, the ethical issues wound up in this space, could you speak a bit on the diversity? You're facing arguably a lot of privilege in who's benefiting in this industry. I mean, literally all white people in America. I'm literally, I'm very privileged, straight white male. 29 years old, uh, working and benefiting from cannabis, right? And this is like, it is something that I recognize and I look at my peers around me and, you know, a lot of them are not black or brown founders. A lot of them are not truly representative of the people who have been championing cannabis for a very long time. Uh, there are a lot of people in cannabis who are trying to change that. There are a lot of things like what I mentioned earlier today uh, the police reform, the prison reform that needs to happen in America, right? People are still incarcerated in America for nonviolent cannabis offenses because they sold still. cannabis at one point. I know somebody in New York who was arrested maybe eight months ago for having like 20 vape pens at their house. It's like mm -hmm. right oh, now wow. in California, I have 20 vape pens plus 150 more plus other boxes of goodies that I just have that in New York, I would be put in jail for a very long time for. If I was in New York Shit. and I was not white, I would be put in jail for even longer because of the color of my skin. And that is, you know, this is, race issues have been a massive thing in America, even more so with drugs, because in America we had a massive war on drugs, which is why cannabis and psilocybin and LSD and all these other drugs are schedule one federally illegal drugs, which in America means there is no medical benefit, which we know is bullshit, right? We know that these drugs definitely have medical benefit and we have amazing people who have been pushing the research of these drugs. Um, but still the, the federal government is lagging behind and that is a big issue. I mean, when we talk about ethics and how in America it's been treated, it has not been equitable. It has not been, this is an opportunity for all. It has been, this is an opportunity for the elite. It has been, when we open a state like in New York, they opened up medical licenses for six groups or maybe eight groups. It's some small number of groups. And it was the people who had the most money. And fundamentally, we know that those people who have the most money probably have Ivy League degrees and they're probably like brought up from good old white families. And like, that's just the way it is. There's not a lot of representation. And it's a huge, huge, huge issue and something that as like, a, you know, somebody who runs a business in cannabis in, in California and the hotbed of it all, it's something I think about a lot and something that matters to this movement. It's like California, would not, California cannabis would not be anywhere if it wasn't for the black and brown people who have raised the community around cannabis and uh, it won't go anywhere without them unless regulators turn a blind eye, which, you know, in some states they definitely have. So again, a lot to unpack here. Um, there's a lot of issues that are happening, but there's a lot of good people who are working on solutions that make sense for both the government and the people. And that's what we need more of. 
Love that. Mm. That's so key. One of the big reasons we believe that the referendum for cannabis didn't succeed, in our view, was due to sort of a slight undercurrent of racism in New Zealand. And it still has the stigma, the marijuana stigma, that, you know, it's only the, the Maori that smoke it and they become bums. And these are the types of things that a lot of the older white generation was saying, and that they're all quite racist around the topic of cannabis. And... I just have a question to ask. If you were to try and solve that equitable problem now, how would you go about setting up the industry so that it can be equitable? What, what would you say? How, how would you go about solving those problems so that we can learn from that? Regular people need access to licenses. Like at the yeah. end of the day, it's, it's in America, we have this thing called the social equity program, which says basically if you are somebody from a, a black community, in america or marginalized community in america you have access to uh to cannabis licenses the problem is there's no fucking infrastructure around these programs so you basically give people licenses and then you say okay well go do it whatever you want and like a bunch of people are like i have no fucking idea what to do with this it's like i guess i could try to start a business but it's not like they're sitting around people who are like let me seed your business let me give you money Mm. like yeah it's like I fortunately know a bunch of people who do that because like I worked in, you know, the investment space, but it's like, that's not the case for everybody. So it's the combination of making licenses available for just regular every fucking day people, but also giving them the support that they need to know what to do with that. Because what you're do, what a lot of states do in America is they're like, all right, well, whoever's got the most money and who could be the most successful, you'll get a license. Well, it's like, all right, well, my friend who's black who lives in New York right now, you know, he is a really smart street guy. Like he has sold a bunch of stuff in his life and he could definitely sell weed. He wants to open up a dispensary. Like he doesn't have that much money right now, but if he had a license, maybe he can get money for it. Like that's important. Those people should mm. have access to that. Cause like right now, like I go through this all the time myself, just trying to get licensed, like myself as a regular everyday person who does not have crazy money sitting around it's like I am even limited on licenses that I can get. And like I'm in the industry and like operating in a bunch of different states. And it's like, wow, if it's hard for me, imagine it for a regular everyday person. And some people will come back and they'll fight me and they'll say, well, like regular everyday people can't run these businesses. Like they need finances. They need this. They need that. It's like by barring people because of their finances from getting licenses you're saying that even if they had the chance, they couldn't, they couldn't survive. So you're not even giving people the chance to compete, to try to learn. Like America was founded on principles where we have this society and this capitalist structure where people can build businesses and compete against each other and provide better services. What you're doing by legalizing cannabis and leaving out people is you're saying, well, you know, we're going to choose the winners. We're going to choose the people who make money. And who are those people? Whoever has the most money to pay the government. It, it makes me think about uh, 500 startups, right? Or other VCs in the space. And are they investing in enough diverse funding? They can't. The amount of money that people are managing that can actually invest in cannabis businesses is less than a percent of what 
every other fund in America can invest in. And that's because it's federally illegal, is it? Yeah, absolutely. And there's vice clauses with many funds that prevent them from uh, investing in things that are illegal. Interesting. So when, upon federal legalization, legalization in America, what you will have is you will have an influx of capital that wasn't able to invest in the space before, which again, could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. I don't exactly know yet. And I don't think anyone's really going to know. Um, but that will be something that will be an effect of when legalization happens, which is a lot more money can come in, which means more people can be capitalized. Again, it's going to increase competition. It's going to increase safe banking for people, which is really good. But who knows what the outcome is going to be like? I've been in this space for four years and I'm well-educated on it. I got no fucking idea. <laughs> so did old pal raise any venture capital? Yes. We raised a solid chunk of change, which I cannot uh, say publicly, but we raised, you know, over over a few million. And it was actually not really venture capital. It was more like high net worth individuals and some institutions that could invest in, in cannabis. But, you know, there is money and that money is mostly reserved for people who have a certain pedigree. And mm. that is the issue with equality and the equitableness of raising in cannabis. It's like, if you're white and smart and check a bunch of boxes, somebody might give you money. And if you're not, you have so much of a harder, so much of a harder way of going to get capitalized. I've always thought that John Bonner was always the sort of persona for this dynamic between illegal marijuana and the people that are really, really getting rich from the, the boom of this industry. Do, do you have an opinion on him? There is an old guard here that exists in, um, and the old guard is still... Fucking hypocrites. Well, you know what it is. In America, there was a, a war against drugs and people still think, you know, marijuana is bad for you in a lot of ways that it is not. And there certainly can be some bad parts of cannabis, right? It's not like a wonder drug that just makes everybody fucking amazing all the time. Like there's some drawbacks, but people are scared. And and I, you know, I don't blame them because the government in America told them they should be scared for years and years and years. If the government told you that, you're probably not going to question it. So you're fighting people who have been socialized by their government to think less than of what drugs could actually do for them, right? Responsibly. Um it's a, it is a lot of fighting, it is a lot of educating, and it's a lot of patience that honestly, like sometimes I'm like, I just don't have it. Like honestly, old people, when you die, we're going to legalize cannabis and that's it. I love my family. I love my elders. Like I think they're amazing, except in this one regard. It's like literally <laughs> what you don't realize, Mitch McConnell, what you don't realize every politician who is like against cannabis is when you die this isn't going to matter anymore because nobody's going to fucking care everyone's going to vote in favor for it because it makes sense from a dollars and cents perspective there's a lot of people who swear by it who like this is totally like a massive massive benefit for their life and for sure maybe there's going to be some things that are wrong with it you know like, do I think it's going to be like nicotine? Definitely not. Like, I think it's going to be better than nicotine. Um, I think there's amazing research that we can do on cannabis pharmaceuticals instead of opioids. It's like we haven't even cracked the surface of this. But what we know fundamentally is the war on drugs did not work. 
the war on drugs took a grouping of drugs, which includes LSD and psilocybin, and says there's no medical benefit when we know that's not true. So from that top level, we have to examine what our laws look like, and we have to change them to work for us, the people of this country, the people of this world, so we can get better alternative to things like smoking cessation. Taking psilocybin has been a massive, massive help for people who wanted to quit smoking. It's one of the best ways that people have found that is actually effective to quit smoking. Like myself, um, you know, I, I've taken LSD in a amazing setting where like I stopped drinking and I stopped drinking for a long time. And like, honestly, I don't fucking miss it. And like, I know what the effect of this is. This is insane that people aren't talking about it. But again, I hate to say this, but old people, like if you're not already awakened to the fact that cannabis is something that we can legalize and like benefit from as humanity, then don't worry about it. Cause when you die, like we're just going to make it legal anyway. And like, that might sound harsh, but like maybe that's the only thing that will wake people up to say like, Oh wow. There are some really smart young people who are talking about this and really smart old people too. who are talking about this and saying, wow, there are benefits here that we can gain as a society. You can only be a brick wall for so long. I often wonder if the same logic applies to climate change. If you just hurried up the old people to die and get out of the way, oh, we sure. might be able to start sure. moving. Well, some COVID of these things kind quicker. of is doing that, actually. Listen, when the young <laughs> potentially who have nothing, Thanks, pandemic. When the young people who have nothing to lose get to a point when there are no more old people with everything to lose, that's when real change is going to occur. Yeah, that's right. Right on, Brett. Oh my gosh. Every everything you've said has been so insightful and really valuable for us as Kiwis down here. I have one final question for you. Did New Zealand massively fuck up a major opportunity in not legalizing cannabis? Hundred a thousand percent? Uh, I'll give it mm. over a hundred percent. I mean, it's just like it is a no-brainer from a financial perspective right? Every single country in the world is hurting right now and can benefit from selling and taxing cannabis. It's like if California, San Francisco and Los Angeles combined are selling cannabis legally to consumers and there have not been problems where people, you know, go crazy and gouge out each other's eyes or some other bullshit that like, you know, (laughs) it's not happening, right? It's like people are like living normal lives smoking cannabis. Why is this not legal elsewhere? Because the uh, government is slow and because politics is slow. And honestly, this is where politics fails people. Like if you are a government run by the people, you need to legalize cannabis. There is no argument. There is no story there. People are like, oh, well, like what if, you know, how do we make sure people who are driving uh, don't kill other citizens? It's like, well, we make fucking tests. If we're not making tests to like check when people are driving and if they're under the influence, then like capitalism isn't working. Then then legalization isn't working. Right. And like that's just crazy. Like there's no there's no reason now that we shouldn't be legalizing if places like Los Angeles are are legalized. One of the largest cities in the world, one of the biggest major metropolitans. It's like that just blows my mind. It is an opportunity where 50% 50% of the people said yes and 50% of the people said no. I goes to the runner. 
I have I have one question because in a perfect world where global legalization has happened, every country in the world has agreed that this thing is legal, like alcohol. How would you see a global economy working? And do you think a country like New Zealand could actually compete with an established industry like California? And how would we do it? Um, you know, there are plenty of ways to compete. And, you know, for a country that is an agricultural country, like there's places that are not great, like Finland, where you can be shipping and exporting to, right? Uh, you know, I think there's your natural, like, what are the agricultural businesses of the world and how does this fit in? Because at the end of the day, cannabis is a commodity, right? Like look at, uh, you know, soybeans, corn, uh, all of the other agricultural goods. They're all just commodities at the end of the day. It's like cannabis right now is interesting to a lot of entrepreneurs in America because there is an arbitrage opportunity, which is if I start something, I can make a ton of money and like do some good. And like, that's cool. But at some point, this just becomes any other industry, right? Like people, uh, you know, China is shipping honey across the world because they can manufacture like a honey syrup type product and people will buy cheaper honey, right? Whereas like mm. there's been a fight in America where it's like, let's make our own honey with our own bees because China's sending us shit and poisoning us or whatever, you know? It's like cannabis will operate in the same way. At that point, I'm less interested in the business, right? At that point, it's like, all right, well, you're going to have some big fucking corporates who have millions of square feet of, of greenhouse space, millions of square feet of indoor space, and they're just like making for the masses. And like, you know, that's cool. That's like what's going to happen. It will be a natural market progression. It's just in California, we got a little glimpse at what a market could be like at the beginning and for people who are our age if you could have built coca-cola would you have right for people who are in the generation above us they built and made the market that coca-cola lives in they, these are big, big multi-billion dollar companies where in consumer goods and in agricultural industries people who are our age have no upside uh in cannabis this is one of the few places in America right now for people who are young professionals where they can come in and build something that is substantive. This is something that is the Coca-Cola or Hershey's chocolate or name consumer brand or name large infrastructure business that is before it is big. And that is what is really interesting here. It's like, because at the end of the day, 50 years down the road, I don't really know if I want to be in cannabis anymore. And if I do, I'm doing something craft, right? I'm doing something like small scale, interesting, because what's going to happen in America, at least, is similar to what happened in alcohol, right? A lot of big people turned into Budweiser and Anheuser Busch and started creating all these mass market products. And then there was like this return to like, oh, yeah, beer, alcohol, like what is it at its root? The same will happen in cannabis. There will be small cultivators who, you know, only grow a hundred pounds a year and it's super hypey and like, that's all cool. But, um, you know, that's where I think this goes in terms of like, what are the export opportunities? It's like at, at first it's just like, can you support the country, right? Can you support New Zealand? And then from there, can you start exporting? I'm sure there's a business there. Absolutely. But it is just another uh, agricultural good at the end of the day. 
Yeah, so true. Thanks, thanks for that, Brett. And I think your point about the more custom crafted vibe, like that goes to the heart of what Old Pal seems to seems to project to its consumer base. And you've obviously loved that from a product marketing perspective. Yeah, it's it's um I just think at the end of the day, a lot of this industry was built on like the aficionados, the people who like really just like are so all about the flower and everything it has to offer. And like when you do products like the mass market products, like that kind of loses its, it loses its allure a little bit, right? It's not as like connected to the consumer, but the thing that will keep this industry going is those, those people who love the craft, the people who really like enjoy the process. And those are the people who will like really keep it going. Otherwise, it's just, you know, a bunch of people who want to try it once or twice and then they'll be done with it, which is also totally fine. Um, you know, at, at any point, it is going to be an interesting few years. And I would say New Zealand definitely needs to get their shit together um, because I think it's a massive opportunity right now. And with the way the world is, there's no reason not to take advantage of something that people want so much. And if 50% of your country is saying, we want this, like we should be listening. Agreed. Agreed. Also, also I've been, um, I've been Google mapsing as the little yellow guy, uh, Mm -hmm. in Northland. And damn, this is just beautiful area. Oh yeah. It's one of the most stunning places in the world. Also, the names remind me of like Hawaiian. I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii, but like they have very similar like name structure. Like, where do the names of these towns come from? Yeah, the the indigenous to New Zealand. Their mythology is that they've they've come from Hawaii. The language that the the Māori language is very similar. It's a lovely. It's a beautiful language as well. But that, that's where a lot that's what a lot of that is it is a a beautiful place too just from just walking oh well you should come you should come down to new zealand because it's stunning (laughs) we'll host you down here you can advocate for the law when cannabis is uh is legal and some of those old people um wake up uh then we'll make wake up or knock off (laughs) wake up or knock off yeah that's the name of my next album it's gonna drop next year so keep an eye out Hey, Brett, thank you very much for taking the time today to speak with us. I appreciate that it's late in LA. It's been incredibly insightful to get your views on this topic and you've definitely shed some light and changed my opinion on a few things and and presented a pretty nuanced argument for cannabis and the benefits and probably some of the issues that that America is facing in this industry. And hopefully gives uh, those listening from New Zealand a bit of an insight as to what's possible and some of the things that we could probably improve upon if we do finally get it legal here. Super dope to chat with you, Brett. Really insightful and it's so evident your passion of this industry and I just hope that in the next five years New Zealand can get up to the pace and we can host you down here can't wait for it i'll stay safe and again thank you very much for your time brett and we'll catch those listeners back after the break thanks guys oh what a rad chat damn appreciate those fresh insights eh coming in hot from california the coolest dude
Wow. Yeah, that was just incredible and some incredible insights into the nuance of the industry. It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating guy. Makes me super jazzed for what can come out of real legalization. Mm. And with the hope that New Zealand can be really fucking competitive on the global stage and make a dent Mm. in this cannabis space and do it in a way that is regenerative and craft and skillful and benefiting the environment and people who have been screwed over in the past. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting point that he made about just the the vast inequality of the industry so far. And I think it's something that we could definitely learn from if we're establishing first a domestic market and then looking at global if it becomes acceptable to, to establish a global market. And his insight into how we can grow sustainably and establish a sustainable industry, I think is something we could definitely learn from. I think we're set up here in New Zealand to have a really sustainable, energy-efficient, ecologically sustainable industry, whether it's outdoor or indoor. Yeah, totally. Thinking about our competitive advantages in the agricultural sense, translating that in in a really efficient way Mm. could completely transform New Zealand's economy. So Chloe Swarbrick, please don't give up on us. (laughs) Please keep pushing the good, good legislation through. I think there's so much opportunity here. Having done the research for this podcast, you look at it and say a direct $1.5 billion local domestic market is what we have to start with. And then everything else that can come from that is pure cream on top. It's all the research, the IP, which is exportable, differentiated product innovation, which will also cause growth in this industry. You think about craft beer, then the absolute explosion of craft beer over the last five years and the consumer changes and tastes and beer. You can see the same thing in cannabis. I have no doubt about that in New Zealand and how much benefit that would actually produce to the economy and to society. THC in society is not a problem. It's only a problem when it's made illegal and you have all the other shit that goes around in a legal industry. Mm-hmm. Right on, 100%. So yeah. can I ask a question of you guys? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what would you want the big detractors, the people that voted no, to really understand? To help change their mind, what would you want them to really understand? I think... For me, it's the fact that they are that older gen. Um, They're consuming drugs almost every day and they're doing so in a way that is fully transparent because they're able to buy bottles of alcohol that have all the stats, all the info, all the production history around the product. Imagine that with that same transparency and you would see a completely different way of, I guess, interacting and um, appreciating this product. So I, that would be my core takeaway. Yeah. What, what she said. That was a good download money. Completely agree. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So legalization brings standardization. It brings competition. It removes the Ill- illegality of the market. There's a whole net positive that will come from legalization, which we can see in alcohol, which we can see in tobacco, which we can see in all the other drugs that are legally available. And yeah, I think if you got them to try a joint, go have a smoke, see what you think. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway. Give it a go. If you turn into a heroin addict, I, I'm so sorry for you. You know what? Maybe it's maybe it's not even a joint. Oh yeah, maybe it's not a joint. Maybe it's a delicious, like um, high-grade cacao cannabis little Could square be. of chocolate. For an artisanal cannabis-infused beverage. It could be. Infused also with elderflower and black currants. Who the fuck knows, but you'll probably love it. So, but that's, yeah. that's exactly mm-hmm. the point. 
it could be very palatable. <laughs> I'm wholly positive on legislation. I, I think we should legalize it, but I'm not fussed on the drug. It's never really taken my fancy. And I think that's also a perfect case study. It's just says that you can legalize mm-hmm. it and it doesn't mean that everyone will automatically start consuming it. It's just like people say, well, I don't drink. Great. I don't smoke. Totally agree. To be honest, I think I'm chill enough. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's just there's so much more benefit that can come from having it legal. Quite what um, half our population think. <laughs> I don't think we're wrong on this one either. So I'm pretty confident. No. All right. Let's roll it up like one of those sexy little pre-rolls from Mendocino. One of specialties. <laughs> no, it's always a pleasure talking to you both. I think that's been a really yeah. <laughs> entertaining and informative conversation. I think people get a lot out of it. So as always, I guess we have to remind our Super Tilt mm. listeners, the growing community that it is, to give us a rating, share the podcast around. Subscribe to our Substack, the newsletter that drops every week that is flourishing Absolutely. just like those little buds growing in California. And talk to us. We're really we're always keen for your feedback. We love hearing from you guys. And yeah, I suppose we'll catch you next week. Kakite. Mm, stay safe out there. Peace. Ooh yeah, Marnie and Aiden, it's always a thrill to chat with you here. This was Super Tilt the Podcast, produced by us. We would love for you to follow our journey and tilt with us. So wherever you are in the world, from Tahoe to Tulum to Taiwan, follow us on Twitter at SuperTiltClub, Instagram at SuperTilt.Club, and we have launched our new funky, fresh weekly Substack newsletter called The Tilt. You can find that at SuperTilt.Substack.com. Links to these will all be in the show notes, of course. And if you enjoyed this episode, send it to your buddy. Share the link in your squad signal chat. We are dropping a fresh episode every week, so stay tuned for the next juicy pod spinning out of Super Tilt HQ. Catch you super soon. Super Tilt.